can take them and turn to the book of Habakkuk, the book of the minor prophet Habakkuk. We are um, getting, we're on the back end of our series through the 12 minor prophets doing one message on each of the minor prophets. Uh, We're calling this the book of the 12 uh, because that's how they would have originally been known to the Jewish people. The minor prophets comes from a Latin phrase. It's a little bit newer. So again, when you hear the word minor, it doesn't mean that these books are insignificant or unimportant. The word minor means they're just smaller in length. We're calling this uh, series the book of the 12. And this morning we land in the book of Habakkuk. I'm kind of uh, depending on you, and if, if you're here this morning, you're just now joining us, and, and uh, you've never heard of these books, or you haven't read through the books, that's no problem, you're not going to be lost, uh, but for those of you who keep up with the series, be sure to read ahead, because we're not going to take time to read um, the whole books, of course, or even have time to touch on everything going on in here. But Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to read the first chapter. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says this, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice, if it does go forth, it's perverted. And here's the Lord's response. This is the Lord speaking. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They they make their own rules. That's what that means. They call their own shots. Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. So he's got a pretty impressive army. Verse 9. They all come for violence. That's That's what this nation is all about. Violence. All their faces face forward. They gather captives like sand. At the kings they scoff, and at the rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. And now Habakkuk talks to God again, and he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with a hook and drags them out of his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, talking about the enemy, and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And then we'll read just the first verse of chapter 2. I will take my stand at the watchpost. I'll station myself on the tower to look out and see what God will say to me. And what I will answer, or what even, in some sense, what he will answer concerning my complaint. 
Habakkuk is one of the most unique minor prophets because it's not, it's, you remember if you've been going with us, a lot of these prophecies are against the nation of Israel, either the northern tribe of Israel or the southern tribe of Judah, and it's an oracle against their own sin. But this is a conversation with God. That's what the book of Habakkuk is. It's a conversation with God. More than that, it's, it's, it's Habakkuk wrestling with God. Because the world to Habakkuk, just, it just didn't make sense. And doubts were arising within his own heart and soul that, that just the perceived contradiction between his life experience and what he knew of God. And this is kind of the theme of the book. Here's kind of what's happening behind the scenes. It'll be on the screen for you. Habakkuk interpreted God based on what he saw in the world Instead of inter- interpreting the world based on what he knew about God. He interpreted God based on what he saw going on in the world instead of interpreting the world based on what he knew about God. And this is what caused the confusion. This is what caused the struggle. This is what got, he, he even accused God of idleness. Twice. I remember when we were at uh, senior high camp, I spoke with, uh, there was a camper in our cabin from another church, and, and uh, it was on the last night of testimonies, and, you know, it was kind of an exciting time, and he tapped me on the shoulder and wanted to go out and talk, and so we left in the middle of it, and, and when we left, we found a table to sit down at, a, at another building, and, and uh, just broke down in tears and just told me that, uh, that within the past school year, three of his friends had committed suicide. I was just yesterday... I was in the ER with, with, our, with our youngest. He had this huge swollen ear and cellulitis infection stuff going on. And, and while we were there at the ER, there were, there were five active 911 calls for two ambulances in Mount Pleasant. And I was talking to people. I could tell the frustration. They're just trying to figure out. There's, there's a little kid that was injured. There was an older man unresponsive. I could hear the radio conversations going on and hearing people come in and out. It was just piling on. And I've spoken and prayed with many of you who have come to me and said, I just, I don't get it. I don't get what's going on. Why is this happening? Why is the world? Why is my family this way? Why are things like this in my life? And many others of you might be thinking, man, how much more can life pile on? And time won't even give, I mean, we just don't have time to go into detail about people in the Bible, like Job and Asaph of Psalm 73, of Jeremiah and David, and countless others in the Bible who struggle with the same very questions. But this isn't the only place someone struggles. Just for example, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Which is also, this is kind of a good attitude to start with. Start with God being righteous. But righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? The psalmist says in Psalm 13, he gives five questions to God. How long, O Lord? Are you going to forgive me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long are my enemies going to exalt over me? We all face times when we struggle with God over his ways and his seeming indifference over the evil or the suffering that we're facing. And I want you to know if you've ever struggled with that or you are right now, it's okay and normal to be there. But 
be cautious of staying there. It is okay to struggle with God, to God, before God, over his ways, and over the fact that he seems to remain silent when everything is just piling on. If you've experienced anything at all in the Christian life, you've probably been there. But we must be cautious of staying there. We should never struggle with God with a clenched fist. That is unbelief. Saying, listen, I'm, God, I'm, it doesn't matter what you tell me. I'm not going to accept your ways. I'm not going to accept your word. I'm not going to accept your will. And I don't really care what you have to say for yourself. That's, that's willful rebellion and unbelief. We have to go to God with, with open hands. And saying, God, it doesn't make sense. And God, it seems like you're just sitting there watching while I'm suffering. But whatever it is that you tell me, whatever it is true about you, I want to receive and embrace your truth. That's what doubt is. And I think that's the difference between unbelief and doubt. Unbelief says, I'm going to go to God, but I don't really care what he says. I'm, I'm going to reject it either way. But doubt is born out of a troubled mind and a broken heart. And it's willing to receive and embrace God's ways. And so this book, as we jump into it, it's, it's about God's care and God's control. We use the, the big word sovereignty. But it's in the context of Habakkuk's personal journey of faith. And more than being a personal journey of faith, this, this would have, I think the reason why this was written is because it would have it been the voice of all the godly people in Israel who were struggling in the same way Habakkuk was. And so we're going to follow this journey to a strengthened faith. You might be saying, what is a strengthened faith? I found this, I think this is a great definition in Psalm 138, verse 3. I, have, I didn't know where to put this in the message, and so I had to put it somewhere. This is where it's at. Where the psalmist says, on the day I called, you answered me. And, and here's what he says. My strength of soul, you increased. That's what it means to have a strengthened faith. It's, it's, when, it's when we go to God, we call to him, and he answers us through his word, and our, and our soul gain strength. And in order to gain some strength, you got to lift some weights. And that's what God is doing with Habakkuk here, and that's what he's doing with all of us. And so I want to go through this journey on uh, Habakkuk's journey to a strengthened faith. And number one, the first step in the process, number one, is a struggling faith. A struggling faith. That's chapter one. Habakkuk was a godly man living in a godless Israel. There was violence at every level. We read that. There was strife, contention, wickedness, social injustice, a corrupt government. Can you relate? And Habakkuk, he looked at all this and he realized there was, there was nothing he could do. And so he went to God. And he goes to God, the one who has the power to do something about all the wickedness. But it seemed God was indifferent. Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? I'm seeing all this stuff. God, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Because if you are seeing what I'm seeing, why are you just sitting there? That's what Habakkuk was saying. Habakkuk asked why God was idly looking at wrong, and it seemed as if God was just standing by and doing nothing. So then we get God's answer, don't we? In verses 6 through 11. Now, this was, now, God was gracious and kind enough to give Habakkuk an answer. He saw the complaint and said, here, I'm going to give you an answer. And it says, notice in verse 5, he says, I am doing a work in your days. God was already at work. And so it was as if he was saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I'm already at work. Don't think I'm just standing there doing nothing. I'm already at work. He was already in the process of doing something about it. 
Because God is never idle, never inactive. He is always at work. And he says, I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if I told you. Now, just a parenthetical statement here. This is actually the same verse Paul uses in Acts 13, 41 to refer to Jesus. When he was trying to convince people, like, hey, you don't get what's going on here. You don't get what God is doing through this man, Jesus. And that might be some of you. But that's, that's the idea. Just God's telling Habakkuk, hey, you don't, you don't even understand what I'm doing. And Paul in the New Testament, Acts 13, he's telling people about Jesus. He's like, guys, you, you don't even get what God is doing through this Jesus. And God just says, listen, you wouldn't understand even if I told you everything. And that's God's sovereignty. When he's doing a work that you would not believe. And I love this quote from John Piper where he says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three of them. And not only may you see a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, the part you do see may make no sense. It's just this whirlwind of what is God doing, what's going on. My family and I have been watching um, a, a show made in 2010. It's a documentary series called Surviving the Cut. And it follows different military combat trainings. And we were watching the U.S. Army's uh, Special Forces combat dive team. And watching what all they had to go through to be ready to be a combat diver. And one of the things they would do is they gave them these, these, uh, these goggles in front of water and they blacked them out. And then they put on all their, you know, their breathing gear and stuff like this. And they put them at the bottom of this uh, 20-foot pool. And they had to be on their knees the entire time. And during that time, instructors would come around, and they would grab the back of them, and they'd flip them and turn them around. They'd rip the breathing apparatus and tie it up in a knot somewhere, so they had to learn how to get the breathing apparatus on. They'd, they'd punch them and hit them and twirl them and toss them, and just all this just complete confusion while just having pitch black, not be able to see anything. And they, they couldn't let their feet hit the ground. Otherwise, they had to do it all over again. There's just this whirlwind of confusion. I just couldn't help but think, man, sometimes it just seems like that's the way life is. There's like this whirlwind of, it's, everything's blacked out. We, just, we, don't even, we don't even, can't even make sense of what is going on. And it seems like life is flipping and turning and all this confusion and the breathing, the breathing apparatus is being torn from our mouth and we're being called to go and put it back in. And that's what was going on with Habakkuk. The small sliver of God's plan that he could see just made no sense. And so God says, hey, I actually am doing something um, about all the wickedness in Israel. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to completely wipe them out, except for a small remnant. And they were arrogant and wicked, and they were going to come and destroy Israel. That's verses 6 through 11. That didn't help Habakkuk very much. As a matter of fact, it made him, it, 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 it intensified the complication. That's what verses 12 is, where he's like, okay, God, I, I get it. You're an everlasting God, all right? So before he jumps to his complaint, he affirms his trust in God. He acknowledges that God is from everlasting. He has no beginning. He'll have no end. He, he acknowledges that because God is everlasting, he gives everlasting life to people. So verse 12, he says, we will not die. He acknowledged even that God ordained the Babylonians as judgment uh, in verse 12. He acknowledged that God was their rock in verse 12, the unchanging, all-powerful God. He had his theology right. Yeah, verse 13, what does he say again? Why are you standing there idly? So not only are you idly standing looking at Israel, it turns out you are doing something about that. Why would you just sit there and watch all these wicked Babylonians come in and wipe us out? Like things got way more complicated for him. And that's what he says when he says at the end of verse 13, 
You remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. He's like, hey, God, Israel's a little more righteous than the Babylonians. Why would you stand there and watch them come wipe us out? A lot going on. And before we get to God's response in chapter 2, I think there's a call for all Christians in chapter 1. And, that, and there's a couple things, but one is that the only way for our faith to grow is to wrestle with the hard questions. You've got to wrestle with the hard questions. You can't just throw them off and ignore them. You can't just give pat answers to them. If there's something troubling your soul, you've got to wrestle with it. Another thing is that we never know what God is doing behind the scenes. We never know what God is doing behind the scenes. Even those moments in which he may peel back a corner. But we do know that God will accomplish his good plan for those who love him. Romans 8, 28. God is doing something behind the scenes of your cancer, your conflict, your chaos. And I don't know what it is. And you may never know what it is. And it may not ever be solved until you get to heaven. God is always at work. And thirdly, I think we need to learn that our purpose in struggling through the hard questions of life must be conformity to his will and his purpose. Not trying to get God to change his mind. And that's what kind of leads us into chapter 2. Because Habakkuk goes from a struggling faith in chapter 1 to a seeing faith in chapter 2. And again, we're not going to take time to read all of this, but just verse 2. Where, where God comes and he says, And the Lord answered me. And he says, Write the vision. Make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits at appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And so he gives a vision. So Habakkuk gets to see. And so he gets to see that things aren't always the way they seem. God says, if it seems slow, wait for it. And this is right after, you know, Habakkuk, it says in verse 1, he says, I'm going to take my stand at the watch post. I mean, this is, this is his heart attitude. So he's not literally going to a watch post to literally see what God will do. He's, he's saying, my heart is like a watchman. It's almost as if he gives his complaint and then he stands there and he says, God, okay, what do you got? How are you going to answer this one? And one commentator rightfully praises Habakkuk for giving God the opportunity to reply. Habakkuk, he watched, he looked, he kept his eyes and his, the eyes of his heart open to the Lord. Listen, growing in faith and living by faith will always be more difficult if we just shoot off our complaints to God and then walk away. We just shoot off all of our complaints and we just shoot off everything that we think is wrong to God and we just say, okay, God, you've got it, see you later. Habakkuk at least said, hey, God, here's my complaint. And he waited for God to reply. So God shows Habakkuk what he's doing now with the Babylonians. God will not respond to sin with indifference, which, which Habakkuk accused God of twice. And that's why in chapter 2 you have five woe statements. So I, you can even go through and circle them to help you make sense of this passage. He gives a woe in verse 6. He gives a woe in verse 9. He gives a woe in verse 12. He gives a woe in verse 15 and a woe in verse 19. It's as if God is saying, like, do you, you think I'm just going to watch the Babylonians do this horrific, awful stuff and not care? Is that what you're going to accuse me of? 
He says, I've got a plan for them as well. The Babylonians will be judged for their unbelief. And verses 6 through 20 of chapter 2 is a taunt song against Babylon with those five woes. And it shows the severity of their sin and the utter undoing Babylon would experience because of it. And we're not going to go through all these, but woe number one was about their self-pleasure. The second woe is about their self-security. The third woe is about their, their uh, it says in verse 12, they build a town with blood, their oppression. Verse 4, it says, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. And they pour out their, uh, in verse 15, uh, is number 4, he says they make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This idea of shameful treatment of others. And then number 5, in verse 19, he says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, a white awake, to a silent stone arise. Idolatry is the fifth one. By the way, many, these sins were many of the same sins that the people, God's chosen people Israel were committing. They were guilty of. The Babylonians, they worshipped self, they worshipped stuff, they worshipped success, and they worshipped sin. And their only hope was found in idols, like we read in verse 19. Idolatry, you're wondering what idolatry is. Idolatry is when we worship the creation rather than the, when we worship the creature rather than the creator. That's Romans chapter 1. It's when we find our hope in self and we find our hope in stuff, or maybe some of that stuff is religion or doing religious things. They look to these idols to provide them guidance and happiness and success and hope. And this is the absolute folly of it. We read in verse 19. He says, man, somebody goes and talks to a piece of stone. He says, hey, wake up, stone. Wake up, piece of wood, and teach me something. And it's overlaid with gold and silver, but there's no breath. It's just the folly of idolatry. They made up their own little saviors. It was something I was reminded by recently uh, of, a, of, a, of a preacher I heard. He talked about us. We create our own saviors. We, get, we go shopping we go to drugs or go to alcohol. We get on social media. We go after this and that. And we, and we beg the things of this world to save us from our anxieties, to save us from our worries, to save us from our troubles, to save us from our hurts and our confusions and our frustrations. And Habakkuk was saying, this is, and the Lord is saying, this is just foolish. We should be like Habakkuk, who goes to the everlasting God. And Habakkuk ends up experiencing what Asaph experienced. It'll be on the screen, Psalm 73, verse 17. Asaph was struggling with the same question, why do the wicked prosper? And here's what he says. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, the fact that the wicked seem to just get off easy and the righteous suffer, it says, it seemed to me a wearisome task to try to figure this out until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then he saw it. Then it was a scene faith. Then he saw what's really going on. Now for Habakkuk and even for Asaph in Psalm 73, life did not make more sense the more he found out about God's will. Did you notice that? Life did not make, did not make more sense the more he found out about God's plan. But he did find more hope and joy the closer he drew to God. And that's what's important. Your life will not make more sense. If God opened up those 10,000 things he's doing in your life, it still would not make any more sense to you. But you will find more hope and joy the closer you get to God. And that's what God expects of us. Christian, 
God, in his word, has given us as full a picture as we will ever get. And it is sufficient for every trial, for every doubt, for every struggle. Let me say that again. We have as full a picture of life as we are going to get. But in this, it's sufficient for every struggle you face, for every trial, for every sorrow, for every doubt. And if you're not a Christian in here this morning, and maybe you've been with us for a while, you need to be reminded from Habakkuk chapter 2 that God will judge the wicked. And verse 4 refers immediately to the Babylonians where he says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. That's about the Babylonians, but it's also true about every person who rejects Jesus. Those who reject Christ Jesus are condemned. And Paul picks up on this verse. Here's another, here's another time Paul quotes uh, from Habakkuk in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then here's where he quotes Habakkuk. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what opened Martin Luther's eyes to come to know Jesus and to be saved. This is what Martin Luther would say, I can't remember exactly, when he understood this verse, it was as if the gates of heaven themselves opened up. This is what we call justification by faith alone. It's the gracious act of God where he takes a sinner and he declares them to be righteous because they are depending and trusting on Jesus Christ for their salvation. He died on the cross and he rose again so that enemies of God could become his friends, his family. And it is by faith in Jesus Christ that one could be said to be righteous. And that's what God offers you. And so he has this, Habakkuk has this seeing faith. He realized that things weren't always as they seem and he realized that that what God was doing was, was so much bigger than he could understand. And that's what led to the third and final one. In this journey to a strengthened faith, it is just that, a strengthened faith. Struggling, and then seeing, and then being strengthened. And Habakkuk in chapter 3 starts off with a prayer, a prayer of reverence. It's the, whole, the whole of the chapter is a prayer. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, O Lord, after he learns about God's plan now to, to punish the Babylonians for doing what they're about to do, here's what he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, your work, O Lord, do I fear. And he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. And he goes on talking about who God is. And we'll touch on those here in just a minute. But Habakkuk looked at all that God was doing and all that God was going to do and responded with fearful reverence. He accepted God's plan and God's ways and who God was. But notice here, even in prayer, this prayer, he asks for mercy. He says, God, I know what you're going to do. You've told me what you're going to do. But remember mercy. He interceded for God's people, and he prayed for God's people. Now, I want you to, if you turn to verse 16 of chapter 3, you say, man, his faith was strengthened. He must, life must be good for him now. Not really. As a matter of fact, in verse 16, he says, I hear 
and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, now notice here, instead of accusing God, notice what what does he do? He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What a journey. What a journey. By the time we read chapter 3, in the end of chapter 3, he had surrendered, he had trusted, and he was content to know that God was going to do his will. And that God was going to accomplish his purpose. I was uh, this morning out on uh, the Alpha Women's Center display out there. She, she has a little, uh, there's, uh, Jeannie has a little quote from Toby Mac. Toby Mac is a, is a Christian hip-hop artist. And I realize I probably just lost half of you right there. Uh, but the quote is this, if I remember right. He says, he, uh, Toby Mac says, Something will grow through all you are going through. And it's you. And that's Habakkuk. Habakkuk ended with a willful, hopeful, joyful gladness and surrender in God. That's strength of soul. That's strength of soul. To be able to say at the end of this, listen, God, I am so fearful. My heart is breaking. He was probably even more broken. But he says, I'll patiently wait. I'll patiently wait. And I will wait quietly. And I will trust. That's soul strength. Bringing our struggles to God and growing in faith doesn't mean things get easier. It sometimes gets more difficult. Think about all the people in the Bible. The closer Daniel got to God, remember Daniel with all the visions, the closer he got to God and the more visions he had, he was like, let's, can we just end it? I'm kind of done being the prophet. And when you read through the book of Daniel, he's constantly getting sick and he's out of, he's kind of, you know, he's out of commission for days and his, 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 the color of his skin is turning because he's just, he has this encounter with God time after time. Moses has fallen on his face on Mount Sinai. Habakkuk here, he sees God's glory in verse 4. He saw the effect of God's power and presence in verses 6 through 11, yet he saw God's victory in verse 12 through 15. And that's what strengthened his soul. That's what fortified his faith. It wasn't the details, it was the detailer. Don't look for the details to strengthen your faith, they won't do it. But the detailer can. And he closes in verse through 17 through 19, maybe these are the only verses you know of Habakkuk, where he says, where he closes with this, he says, I'm going to wait quietly for this, and he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, there's not, there, though there's no fruit on the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I will rejoice. We have to look at these, 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 these verses and say, well, what truly makes me happy? And I don't know that answer for you. But can we be happy outside of Jesus Christ? The answer is an emphatic no. You cannot truly be happy apart from a saving, growing, surrendered, intimate life and walk with Jesus Christ. 
Because it's only in Christ. And this is something we can jump back to another prophet. Remember what Jonah said in chapter 2? He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The sin and pleasures of this world, sins like sex outside marriage, sins like illegal drug use, sins like drunkenness, sins like stealing, sins like lying, sins like cheating. They're all sins that offer momentary pleasure. But they offer no hope of steadfast love. One commentator says about these verses and these sins, he says, Worldly happiness takes away the liberty to enjoy an even even greater happiness in Jesus. So do you possess the greatest eternal happiness? Or are you in love with the fleeting things of this world? That's what this means. Here's another question. If, if, If your life was stripped of every earthly pleasure, will you have joy at the end of that? Or will you have a restless heart? Augustine, that early church father, he says, Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. What happens when money gets tight? When health goes bad? When your crops are destroyed? When businesses, when your business slows down? When your marriage is in turmoil? When the applause and the cheers stop? Do you have rest in those moments? Is my faith being strengthened? Think about all that Habakkuk had to go through to get a strengthened faith. He had to go to God in honesty and humility. He had to pray and wrestle with God. He had to listen to God's word. He had to meditate on who God is. He had to wait on God. That's how his faith grew. A struggling, doubting, confused, heartbroken life needs those things. To go to God honestly and humbly. To believe God's word. To pray and hear and meditate on God. And wait on the faith to grow. I want to conclude by just wrapping up three points that kind of want you to walk away with through all this. Just as a review, number one, wrestle with the hard questions with the purpose of conforming to God's will in Christ's image. Number two, as I said earlier, God in his word has given as full a picture as we will get, and it is sufficient for every trial, every doubt, every struggle. Warren Wearsby says on this passage, God doesn't always change the circumstances, but he can change us to meet the circumstances. And thirdly and finally, cling to Christ, and your joy will remain when life begins to wither. It's a long journey, but God wants to refine you and help you grow. So take the journey. That way you can say with the psalmist like we did at the beginning of the service, on the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that for myself and everyone in here, regardless of the, the strength of the trial, which we know there are many in here, regardless of the strength of the trial, may through calling out to you and trusting in you, Lord, give us strength of soul. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.